This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. Thanks for listening to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I am Molly Gamble, and today I'm sitting down with Madeline Bell, president and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, to talk about the upcoming sixth season, the intersection of the health system and gun violence prevention, health equity in major urban areas, and cutting-edge therapies. Madeline, hello. We have a lot of ground to cover today. How are you, and where does the podcast find you? Well, I'm great today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm on the 20th floor of the Robert Center for Pediatric Research, one of our research buildings. Wonderful. I imagine the majority, if not all of our listeners today are well aware of Children's Hospital Philadelphia, but just to set the stage, Madeline, for our conversation, what are a couple of key facts about CHOP that you feel are important for our listeners to know or to keep in mind? Well, we're really proud of the fact that we are the nation's first children's hospital. And now we have two hospitals and over 60 locations. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize about us, we have a very large research institute that has had international impact. Uh, so something we're really proud of. I mean, that's quite the claim to claim to fame, the first, the nation's first children's hospital. Yeah. Well, we're going to tackle a handful of themes that are top of mind for you at CHOP, beginning with gun violence. Philadelphia, like many other U.S. cities, has struggled with gun violence for years. And this is a topic that just over the past you know, decade, even, you find health system leaders like yourself talking about it more. It comes up more in terms of priorities. What's your vision, Madeline, for how health systems and institutions like CHOP, where do they fall in the ongoing efforts to promote gun safety? Well, I just had this conversation yesterday with a, a mayoral candidate in Philadelphia. And what I said was that I think that our hospital and the hospitals in the Philadelphia region and really nationally need to take a really active role and lean in. Um, we're certainly seeing the aftermath of what gun violence does in our hospitals. And so for us to be part of understanding the root cause and part of prevention and being a leader in those areas and partnering with others in this city, I think that's really the most important role we can have. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you know, the root cause and prevention, there's, there's so many layers to gun violence. It, it not only poses an immediate risk and, and threat to people's well-being, but it also carries such far-reaching consequences, as, especially for children, as they develop and for their long-term health. What, what are some of the indirect health effects of gun violence that might not always receive the same amount of urgency or attention as its, its direct effects? Yeah, maybe I should also start with a finer point on, you know, just understanding the impact of gun violence directly on children. And then I think we can talk about um, other impacts that it has. But just in 2015, in a survey that, that was published in JAMA Pediatrics, we learned that one in eight children between the ages of 14 and 17 have witnessed a shooting in the United States. That's really unbelievable. It's it's really the biggest killer of children in the United States. And e even here at Children's Hospital in 2022, we saw children 
65 children with firearm injuries, and already this year in 2023, we've seen 58 children with firearm injuries. And so I think it's important for people to understand um, what an impact it is having directly on children, but it also has indirect impacts on children's mental health. And, you know, we learned and through um, our work as also researchers that neighborhood gun violence exposure is really directly associated with poor mental health outcomes, such as anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and that impacts their ability, children's ability to go to school and to grow and to become functional adults. Um, we also um, were involved in a study with our neighbor, University of Penn, and our academic partner, um, looking at neighborhoods between 2014 and 2018. And those children who lived in areas where gun violence was pervasive saw increase in emergency department visits and mental for mental health issues. So. We know to be sure that this is impacting these children for a lifetime. And I recently had the opportunity to interview a young man who was a, a patient of ours, and he talked about the fact that he came to a primary care practice, one of our primary care practices, uh, with what he thought was breathing issues and asthma issues. And what it really was is that he was traumatized by seeing one of the children in his neighborhood who was his close friend, a victim of gun violence, and then seeing it happening throughout his neighborhood. And he talked about being not, not being understood as this was really an anxiety and mental health issue. And we kept looking for physical reasons that he was coming back to the emergency department and back to the primary care doctor. Um, and I learned from interviewing him on my podcast, Kareem Rosser um, is his name, that uh, you know our ability to help him work through that really made all the difference in the world to him. But also the other thing that was so important, he was able to get connected to a horse riding program in Philadelphia that ultimately led to him being an internationally renowned polo player. And so the lesson I learned from Kareem is first, we have to recognize and screen children to understand what violence they're exposed to and we need to help them get them treatment. And we also need to give them an alternative, help them to get an alternative to picking up a gun. Because once you have a gun, it's really, impossible to take it away. So those of us who work with children, we really need to be in tune to getting them connected to more productive things that they can work through in their community, and, you know, more productive in engagement of activities and interests um, that give them that alternative to picking up a gun as a solution. Mm-hmm. Marilyn, you said you said a lot there. I think that stat that you shared about one in eight children ages 14 to 17 have witnessed a shooting in the U.S. Very surprising when you said that. Um, It's more than I I would think. Um, The other thing that you mentioned is that so far, CHOP throughout 2023 has treated, was it 58 children with firearm injuries? It sounds like that's on pace to exceed the the total that were treated last year. Is that right? Yes, it is, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. 
The other thing you may, may mention of in passing and that I think is is really important, and we don't need to get into further detail here, but you mentioned that you had a conversation about this with a mayoral candidate, which I think just shows all the possibility there for partnership too with health systems like CHOP and others, and, and especially with in dense urban areas and working with local policymakers um, and lawmakers to really move this up on the agenda in, in terms of how it's treated as a priority for, for solutions and more intervention. Yeah, I think that what we are trying to do, even in some basic level, is to even start with a coalition that we've been part of, um, and it's it's a coalition that is uh, that is um, a group of hospitals um, from across the country that's really focusing on even just getting these conversations started about guns in the home at the primary care visit. I recently got this um, email from a parent who was really upset that the nurse in the primary care practice was asking them if they had a gun in the home. Mm -hmm. But this is all a part of us trying to normalize this conversation with parents to help them understand that they need to lock up their guns, um, helping them to understand a, a way to do that, and helping parents to have a script on feeling comfortable to ask if you know a play date is at someone's house who has guns and if they're locked up. That's something that we can also influence at a policy level, making sure that this is an important part of platforms for elected officials, like understanding the prevalence of gun violence and some of the basic things that we can do to prevent that. And um, you know, in talking to a mayor candidate yesterday, this, this candidate recognized that this is one of the top issues in the city of Philadelphia and is looking for Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other hospitals to help find a solution and to partner. And I think national partnerships, like we're part of uh, a campaign that's called It Doesn't Kill to Ask, and um, local partnerships through businesses and not just hospitals and this, our, our municipalities, but getting businesses and others engaged. Because when you have a lot of violence and a lot of gun violence in your city, it makes it more difficult to develop your city and recruit people and retain people to come here. And um, it's, so it's part of the narrative as a, a hospital leader to get out there and talk with other leaders and communities to let them understand the importance of this directly on their business. Mm -hmm. and, and going back to what you had mentioned about a clinician or a nurse asking about firearm storage in the home, I can see where that might fall into something that parents feel like, what an insult to, to imply that I wouldn't know how to store my firearm or my gun. But I, th I think, Malin, just to support why that is needed, you know, in 2017, there was a study that found about 40% of parents thought their child didn't know where the gun was stored when in fact the child knew exactly where the gun was in the home. Um, so just just showing the gap in that sometimes children are aware and know much more than one might think or assume. Um, and sometimes having neutral conversations about that information in the healthcare setting can be so helpful and impactful. I think it's a wonderful point that you made and uh, absolutely our experience. And I hope that that person who emailed me, that parent, with nothing else, it gave him food for thought to go back and look at his gun storage in his home. Even though he was angry, I sure hope that he went home and gave it a second thought. 
and you know, our job is to help normalize these conversations so that it doesn't become an affront to people, but it right. becomes part of what their pediatrician does in their normal child, you know, healthy child visits. Right, right. Well, you know, related to gun violence and, and the work you're doing on that front, I wanted to also spend some time with you on health equity. This is a big podcast. We could easily devote, you know, a couple hours of this to this alone, Madeline, but um I wanted to hear some of the biggest initiatives that are are underway, but first help me understand what you're facing. You know, Philadelphia, it's one of the most diverse cities in the country. Um, Can you share a few key facts or some information about the health disparities or inequities that are in in place in the city? Yeah, unfortunately, Philadelphia is the poorest big city in the United States. And we're located in a part of Philadelphia called West Philadelphia. So, you know, in our backyard is um, one of the poorest areas in the country. Uh, About three quarters of the children in our backyard live in poverty with food deserts scattered throughout that region. And one in four children in West Philadelphia, again, our backyard, is diagnosed with asthma. It's got one of the highest infant mortality rate in a large city and the housing conditions, food deserts, living conditions, um, violence, as we've just talked about, is really pervasive and unfortunately gives children a sense of hopelessness for their future. Um, So certainly this is a call to action for me uh, and for everyone here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We want to be part of the solution and we want to reflect the ideals of our founders who founded this hospital in 1855 because they were appalled by the conditions that children were living in in the city in that, in that time. And I feel the same way today. We've got to be part of the solution. And doing that means that we have to invest in programs that um, are non-traditional for uh, a hospital. And we do these in many ways as sort of a hub and spoke from our health centers. And so from a health center where children normally go for their, their doctor's visit, there's so much that we can do because we have a captive audience at that time. And our focus is on food insecurity and poverty and housing and literacy and violence. And so as, in, as some examples, children get a book at every um, pediatrician visit. And over the time, from the time they're born until they're 18, they create, they collect a wonderful library of books. And we have people who are reading to them as volunteers. Um, We have been helping families who have asthma to renovate their homes. We've renovated over 150 homes using minority contractors from the local community to remediate asthma triggers in the home. So we've been going in for 23 years with community workers into homes to help remediate asthma triggers and putting on um, bed covering and and giving them cleaning supplies. But that only went so far. Uh, a lot of the housing conditions um, caused mold in the home. So leaky roofs, leaky pipes, all kinds of issues that we weren't able to address. So we decided that we were going to go in and renovate the homes of our children um, who have asthma that are patients. And we've actually seen reduction in emergency room visits. But if you can imagine the day that I went to our chief operating, chief financial officer and said to him, we need to set aside money to renovate homes in our backyard. 
it is non-traditional. Um, children, our families who come to our primary care practice can get their tax returns done. Um, we have a something called a medical financial partnership where we have partner accountants and, and people from the finance industry who come in and ensure that our families get all of the tax credit benefits that are due to them. Many of these families were going to, as an example, a check cashing uh, place on the corner to get their taxes done, and they were not getting the benefit of that. Mm. We also have families that have lots of issues with housing outside of some of the renovations I mentioned. So they're having trouble with their landlords. Um, they have domestic abuse. We have a medical legal partnership, so we have lawyers at our primary care practices that help families navigate these issues. We have food pharmacies. So if we see that families are food insecure, we give them a prescription for three days of healthy foods and we have healthy foods there. We have a community garden where we're giving thousands of pounds of food away in a free market at the primary care center. So there's just so much that we're doing that's outside of what's traditional health care that's aimed at really moving the dial and making a better future for these children in our backyard. Yeah, I love the creativity you just described. I, I think I, I also commend you because I think as a leader of an organization like CHOP, sometimes it's really easy to stick to tradition, to stick to what is known and what is safe and to take chances of making investments and decisions and building the buy-in to do things like renovate homes. You touched on housing, you touched on food security, financial literacy, just also literacy period with the books and the book program you have. Um, can you share any advice with leaders who are listening? And let's say they're at an institution or an organization that isn't as mature with health equity programming as yours is. What is something that a piece of advice for if they if they see a need in their community and they think that their organization can help, whether through financial investments or partnership, any thoughts on how that be raised, to, whether it's to their board or their leadership team? Do you have any thoughts on how you have been a, a great champion of those conversations? What I've tried to do is draw the analogy that your community is a patient. It is a patient, think of it as a patient that comes to your hospital. And our community is obese, is also malnourished, is, has literacy issues, is the subject of violence, um, has poor housing, doesn't have access to legal services, is impoverished. And so we have to treat the community and help the community just like we do the individual patient. And that's how I like to think of it. The second thing I would say is that these programs that I'm mentioning are all um, conceived of and run by physicians who are health services research, researchers and are showing that there are actually better health outcomes as a result of it. So mm -hmm. sometimes that data and the cost savings needs needs to be shown as evidence that these things actually work. Um, and so, as I mentioned, for the children who are, who are in our asthma program who have had their home re renovated, we've actually seen a decrease in emergency visits and inpatient visits to the hospital. That's the best outcome you can get. Uh, so kind of changing the framework of your thinking as a hospital leader, that bringing patients to your hospital is not your ultimate goal. Your ultimate goal is to ensure that you're you elevate the health of your community and you improve the access to health care. Right. 
I should make mention too for listeners, you know, CHOP established its Center for Health Equity in 2021 with the goal, just like you said, Marilyn, to further that evidence-based body of work and, and the practices to really support these equitable health outcomes. Yeah, and we, we've been doing this work for years, but I really decided that I needed to hire a leader who's a physician, um, Dr. Tyra byron Stevens, who's been doing this work. She's actually been doing the asthma work, which is groundbreaking and has been replicated by many other communities, thankfully. Um, and she has really been given the charge to say, let's take some of these communities, draw a circle around them, find out exactly what they need and then focus those interventions. One of the things that, I, that she did that I really love is she created a um, community advisory committee, not of just people living in the community, but our employees who live in that community. So she drew a circle around the um, most challenged community in West Philadelphia. So a specific zip code that's around a primary care practice where she practices. And she created a, an advisory board of our employees who live in that community that can really speak truth to what they're living with. And they have a motivation because they're part of the CHOP community. And I really loved her creativity in doing that. And she's got them just guiding her every step of the way about where we should prioritize our efforts. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm going to make sure we carve out some time too, Malin. And it's a, a lot of the things we're talking about are related to one another. Um, and that is behavioral health needs. Um, behavioral health, when we talk to children's hospital leaders, I mean, it is probably one of the first, if not the first agenda item of many conversations. I'm curious, what changes in behavioral health needs have been most noticeable to you and CHOP in recent years, and how are you adjusting or changing to to meet those needs? Well, I think to call the attention to the issue, I would just start with how pervasive this is and how much we've seen an increase in children with behavioral health issues. And when you think about, you know, children who come to the hospital, um, I have to say, like, we can see six, 700 children a month who are coming here in psychiatric crises. Um, and pediatricians and communities are reporting that more than half of the children that they see for well visits are saying that they have significant um, mental health concerns. That's staggering. Um, schools, you name it, we're seeing it everywhere. And um, I think one of the things that I, I believe is is an area that we all need to invest in is making behavioral health care accessible in communities. And so we, we have a program called Healthy Mind, Healthy Kids that puts um, a therapist or counselor in the primary care practice so that when a pediatrician sees somebody, it doesn't take weeks or months sometimes to get them an appointment with the right provider for, for that child. So at least they can see somebody immediately and get assessed to understand, you know, are they having suicidal thoughts? Are they having anxiety that's preventing them to, from going to school? Are they thinking about um, hurting somebody else or themselves? You know, to, to do that type of screening and see if they can get access to support immediately. Um, and that's an area where I think we all need to invest uh, in in that. I We are building new inpatient beds, um, 46 beds and a crisis center, 
and I can tell you the day that it opens will be oversubscribed. Uh, and we need to keep doing that because children are coming in such crisis that they can't um, be maintained in the community and be free from harming in themselves or others. So we have to have a crisis center. We have to have inpatient beds. We have a comprehensive outpatient program, day programs. Um, but that is putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound uh, as an analogy. We really need to go upstream and capture these children in schools and in primary care and get them access to care early. We also need to invest in research. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there really is very little research that um, we've invested in as a country for why this is happening and are there genetic causes? Is it all environmental? We have a Lifespan Brain Institute that does just that, that is studying um, brains and brain development from in utero through adulthood to better understand psychiatric illness. Um, so it's, um, you know, I would say that in summary, the bigger issue is, a, a, is an ecosystem problem. Uh, behavioral health services are under reimbursed compared to physical health um, services. And that leads to less people choosing that as a profession, either psychiatry, um, psychology, social work, counseling services, services or, or professions. And um, so we have a shortage of providers in this country, and then we have an increase in children. And that does not make for a good recipe. Right, right. And I just want to make sure I heard you clear and, and correctly, Madeline. It, you said 600 to 700 children per month coming to the hospital campus experiencing a psychiatric crisis? Yes, that's to our emergency department. Um, uh -huh. So it's a, it's a staggering number, and we've seen 30% increase in the last several years. Um, this past week, I was in Denver with um, CEOs of children's hospitals from across the country, and we spent two days really talking about the behavioral health crisis and what can we do um, together, knowing that, you know, this is not an area where we're going to compete with each other. We mm -hmm. need to work together um, on a solution because you name the city and the same issue is happening. And if we can't treat children with, with mental health issues when they're children, they're going to become unproductive adults. They're going to become addicted. They're going to turn to violence. They won't be able to serve in the military. They won't be taxpayers. They won't be able to help be healthcare providers that take care of us as we age. I mean, there's there's a real compelling reason to do this in childhood, but we we do have a crisis right now that has to be addressed. Right, as you were saying, I was just thinking about existing. I know you you mentioned some renovations that Chop um, made recently, but a lot of existing facilities are not equipped for that type of volume of, of pediatric psychiatric patients. Um, so it sounds like some changes underway at CHOP. I think though you pointed to s the existing need for more information. When we speak with executives like yourself, there is a sense of exasperation. You know, they'll tell us what they're seeing today and what they're doing today in response. But I think there's such an appetite for more upstream information to have pair some action to. Madeline, to your point, um, I, I find myself, I would love that too, to, to understand, better understand what really were some of the catalysts for this big and significant uptick. And then also sometimes the way we talk about it as a crisis, you know, crisis, usually they have a beginning, middle and end. This, this seems like we're not quite sure when things will start to 
be alleviated or, or you know, if, if there is an endpoint in sight? That's actually what I said to our, our my CEO colleagues last week when I was meeting with them. And I said, everything else we can sort of predict the incidence. We know the incidence of cancer in children. We know the incidence in heart disease in children. We know the incidence of a lot of different health issues. And so we can develop a strategy and a plan to address that. And we can say, we need to hire this number of people, build this type of facility, have this type of training. Um, we need to you know, go out and be a thought leader and get public policy support around it. We need to get philanthropic support. Like We know how to do all of that for mm -hmm. The, the diseases that we are so familiar with. But with the behavioral health crisis, from an incidence perspective, I don't know when it's gonna stop growing. And I think that's what's most challenging to me as a leader. Mm -hmm. All I can do is try to go upstream and invest in um, encouraging people to be, go to, into these fields, uh, training them to do it, putting supports in schools and primary care practices, telling legislatures, why this is so important, why they need to um, get engaged, and you know how we can be thought leaders to influence public policy in general around mental health. But it is, it's really difficult to plan when you don't know where the end is. Right, right. Well, just to shift gears a little bit, Marilyn, as we, we wind down, there's two other topics that I wanted to make sure we get your thoughts on. You know, the first is the nearing flu season um, on the cusp of the beginning of it as, as we speak. Last year's was very difficult for hospitals, particularly children's hospitals, given that added strain of RSV. At this point, what has, what has or is CHOP doing to prepare for this sixth season that's upon us? Well, you really have tapped into what we've been talking about a lot in the last few weeks. Um, we are doing everything we can to prepare. Um, one of the things that we always do is we look at the Southern Hemisphere. What was the experience in the Southern Hemisphere when it was their winter and our summer um, in terms of flu incidents, RSV, COVID incidents, any kind of respiratory viral incidents? And we learn about that. And we did learn that the flu vaccine, which we are encouraging everyone to get, and I worry because uh, I think with the COVID vaccine, everybody was so focused on um, that as a negative thing that, I, that it sort of reduced the amount of children getting flu vaccines. So we really need to double down and make sure children get flu vaccines. But the, the vaccine this year seems to be effective in the Southern Hemisphere. So I'm hopeful about that. Um, I also am excited about the fact that our SV vaccine has been approved and uh, will be out to market soon. And for the the right children that will be really helpful in terms of prevention may not be um, in time to really change the trajectory of this season, but I hope I hope that it will. Um, and uh, you know, for for the children who have who are immunocompromised or have other health issues, you know, the new COVID vaccine might be appropriate for them too. But what we're really doing is trying to um, do what we did in a more planful way last year, which was staff up, um, be prepared with protocols and support families. Um, you know, I, we all call them the worried well who come to the hospital when they maybe could be fine at home with a telehealth visit or a phone call from a, from a nurse. 
our primary care visit, they don't necessarily need to come to the hospital. Uh, really ramping up a lot of the things that we put in place really quickly last year and trying to do that in a more proactive way. Um, so basic education too, reminding people, hand washing works. Um, you know, if you're sick, don't come to work because we also want to, you know, protect our employees from each other and from our patients. So all of these things, you know, some of it's back, back to basic, back to basics, um, infection control, and some of it is really learning from what we had to do really quickly to ramp up and manage a, a very difficult viral respiratory season last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like because I mean, obviously last year was RSV that was really demanding the most attention, um, even at the media level. And then years before that COVID-19 years before that flu, it seems like this season will be one of the first in, in which all three organizations like yours are trying to give equal attention to, you don't want to let your guard down on any one of them. Right. Yes. I mean, it, it's funny because people have said to me, wow, RSV that's new. I was like, well, actually not. I mean, I, I started as a nurse um, let's see, 40 years ago. And RSV was something that I dealt with every year and, you know, it was commonly known in a hospital. But because children were separated for so long, it became more like an epidemic last year and, you know, really became newsworthy mm-hmm. in the same way that COVID had been and, and flu had been. Um, so it's been around for a long time. And uh, we are going to be prepared and, and manage whatever surges we see as a result of those three and other viral respiratory infections. Yeah, great. Well, we've spent so much time today talking about what's occurring today, what's occurring in the near term, and then also a a bit long term. But I also wanted to make sure we spend a bit of time while we're looking ahead, recognizing just how long CHOP has been a forward-looking and really a pioneer when it comes to gene and cell therapy. This is a specific dimension of healthcare. It's increasingly important. Um, This therapy, it can be so cutting edge that admittedly, sometimes when I hear about different anecdotes or interventions, I have a hard time getting my head around it. Um, I'm curious if in closing, as we wind down, if you can share a story about a specific therapy that has origins at CHOP that you feel is really, it illustrates the vast potential of this type of treatment. Well, it's hard to uh, to ignore the the real value of CAR T cells, and we were the hospital that successfully treated the first patient, Emily Whitehead, who I who I did a podcast with recently, and was so much fun to do because I remember her when she got her treatment, but now she's been more than ten years cancer free. But she was the first patient to successfully receive CAR T cells, and um, so transformational to see her grow. And now her as a pioneer and her parents as pioneers and partners with us um, have led to more than 500 children at CHOP being treated with CAR T cells. And wow. we're essentially taking, you know, cells out of the body and teaching them how to really um, eradicate the cancer and putting it back into the body. And, um, you know, Emily's had a very challenging course and, you know, she doesn't remember a lot of it, which is great, but her parents certainly do, and her doctors and nurses do. Uh, but now to know that these children, it's so complicated technically and scientifically, um, come to the outpatient oncology clinic here at CHOP, and if you watch CAR T cells be given, it's just in a little syringe, and it's pushed 
into the vein and that's it. Um, and so we've come such a long way, but it, it requires decades of research and for us, lots of investment in a vector manufacturing facilities, expanding our cell manufacturing facilities. Um, these are complicated, highly technical, that requires highly technical staff. Um, but to see the outcome and to see a child like Emily, you know, going to college and, um, you know, being on the other side of it and all these other 500 plus children that have had her, um, like her experience, it's, it's really the most rewarding thing that I, I can, I can point to. That's amazing. And you mentioned your podcast, Malin, a couple of times for listeners who'd be interested in checking that out. Can you just share the title of it so they can find it wherever they stream podcasts like ours? Yeah, thanks. It's called Breaking Through with Madeline Bell. And um, my favorite part is to actually talk to the patients themselves. And I mentioned to today, um, but also their parents and to hear their journeys. I started out talking to like the scientists and the physicians but really, um, I love hearing directly from the families who have experienced breakthroughs themselves. Mm -hmm. That's so neat. Well, I want to thank you, Malin. You were generous with your time. We covered a lot today. Is there a thought you'd like to end on a, or a message you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I have to say it's a privilege for me to have this role and to be able to serve as a thought leader and advocate for children because they don't have their own voices. They don't vote. Um, and to be part of really tackling the most complicated challenges, and many of them that you, you asked me about today. Um, but I can't do it alone. I have this amazing team behind me, and um, I can't thank them enough for everything they do to make what happens here happen every day. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a daily Becker's reader. Um, so it's where I get my news source, and, and I know my team does too because I walk out of my office and ask them if they've read the, the, the most recent Becker's article. Well, we appreciate that, Madeline. Um, writing for readers like you, um, important positions you hold, you know, it's, it's really our responsibility too, and we take it quite seriously. So Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, thank you so much for being our guest on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, and I look forward to checking in with you again soon, Madeline. Thank you. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks, to help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way. Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there.